0: The following audio is via a Skype call.
1: Oh, well, what are we
2: doing now? I guess we talk. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air.
1: Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell. In your ears for the hour, if our luck holds up, and the technology. Of course, the latter part is the responsibility, which he handles so well. Of course, I'm talking about tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you today? Hey, Gary and Suzanne, and boy, I'm nice and cozy around this
0: campfire. I got it all lit up. It's burning bright. (laughs) Got my marshmallows roasting for some s'mores, and soon we'll be passing around a flashlight to hold under our chins and tell some ghost stories.
1: This is why they call radio theater of the
0: mind. Yes. I can picture it. I can pick the heat from that little campfire. is just uh, warming me up. And we're in Florida.
1: (laughs) We we need that. This is a real... (laughs) It's been a little cold here lately, which is unusual, but you know what, we'll take it for a change of pace. Thank you for that, that was very nicely done, Nathan. Ghost stories, you Let, know, let's this
0: talk of some ghost stories. Ghost
1: stories, and particularly so, we scheduled this advisedly because on Monday, it will be December 7th, the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And a little bit later, I'll have something to say about that because I have visited the Pearl Harbor Memorial site three times. And I had been aboard the Arizona Memorial itself twice. One time was uh, the ordinary tourist experience and the extraordinary happened to me, though I did not see anything nor hear anything I could describe as paranormal. But it was a very meaningful and solemn experience for me and quite inadvertent the second time I was aboard the USS Arizona.
0: We were really thrilled to meet Matthew Swain for the first time a couple of months ago when we were sent his book about haunted rails. And we thought, oh, well, how great was that? We read the whole thing cover to cover. And loved it, had him on, and then found out he's got a lot of other interesting books. So let me tell you a little bit about Matthew L. Swain. He's a journalist who works as a research writer at Penn State. He is the author of five books, America's Haunted Universities, Ghosts of Country Music, Haunted Rock and Roll, Haunted World War II, and Haunted Rails. We read and talked about Haunted Rails a couple months ago, and we said please come back and talk about Haunted World War II for the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and he said he would. So we have read a part of that book, and we're going to talk about some very interesting stories today having to do with that. And so welcome to Manson Mitchell once again for the second time, Matthew Swain.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, it's a, it's a pleasure.
0: We love your stories and we love the way you tell them.
2: I really appreciate that, that means a lot.
0: In particular, your
1: book, Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes and Strange Synchronicities was a compelling read for us. In The Honest Affair Reporting, we have not finished it because we could only get to so many stories in one hour. So we will finish the book, and maybe you'll be back discussing more of those. As part of the panoply of the ghost stories that you chronicle, you are an accomplished and, res- and respected paranormal researcher. Before we get started on the stories themselves, Matthew, what is your connection to the, that whole milieu of ghost research and paranormal investigation?
2: Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's interesting for me, because I I take it at really a, a different angle on it because it all started for me uh, because I was born on on uh, Halloween and just always loved ghost stories and and horror movies and and monster movies and all of that. I have always enjoyed that, and then when I became a journalist for a newspaper. Um, every Halloween I would try to come up with an interesting story or feature story for, for um, the newspaper. And, and one year I decided I would do some uh, local ghost stories from around my, my, my hometown of Tyrone, Pennsylvania. So I wrote those and then I didn't have enough material. I went to um, some of the universities around here, which are kind of, Interestingly, really haunted and wrote about them, put this story out. And what I really noticed was people responded to that more than probably any other piece I wrote. Um, You know, you could write stories about accidents, fires, crimes, but they really sort of these stories really resonated with people and they would come up and tell me those stories. So from that point on, I had started to collect stories uh, mainly about haunted universities but then later on as this kind of career if you want to call it that blossomed i would start collecting stories from different uh, parts of of history that i'm interested in for example i'm really interested in music history so um so you know the haunted rock and roll stories were, were kind of a natural fit i tyrone is based in near uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania. It's kind of the railroad capital. My grandfather was a railroader, so. I always loved railroad history. So I started researching about that and stories there. And of course, I'm also interested in military history. Believe it or not, I started out, I would say more on the civil war side, interested in civil war history. Uh, but when I went to write a book about civil war history, some of these, uh, Writers that are out there right now, and I can't think of the one uh, gentleman's name, but they have just covered it so well that I really didn't feel that I I could add anything to that story. So I went with my other uh, interest, which was World War II history, and decided I would see if there were stories there, and and sure enough, there were. And so ultimately, I approached this as a journalist, as someone who uh, certainly will. Talk, in fact, Haunted World War II is, has several um, paranormal researchers that I interviewed and talked to, to them about their stories. And then I take also what I would consider uh, a skeptical side and, and bring that in. Um, so I, I use all these sources and then try to tell all the story, the complete story. So that's, that's really what, what I've done here.
1: And we're very glad that you have. I'm sure your readers to a person would find these stories enriching in their way. They can be harrowing, every one of them is eerie, but they invite you into a world of exploration. That's one of the things I admire most about your chronicling of these events, however we may interpret them, because there's a (laughs) lot of controversy surrounding such research.
0: Right, and Gary and I both appreciate the fact that you are skeptical. You are not a debunker, which is at one extreme, and you don't believe everything that you've heard or read, which is at the other extreme a believer in everything versus a believer in nothing you find yourself right in the middle saying it could be true it could be not true here are, here is are the facts as I understand them from various witnesses and you lay it out in a very neutral and objective way and that's one of the things we actually appreciate about your writing Matt is that you you walk that fine line saying here's the information what do you think and that it gives the reader a chance to make up their own minds about it.
2: Uh, I'm really glad you said that and glad you picked that up because it is it is conscious on my part. Well, I'm saying it's conscious, but uh, I think as a reporter, you almost have this uh, subconscious way of approaching a story, which you're trying to get all the voices in in a space of, you know, enough length that you don't lose people's interest, but you're trying to bring in all the facts and all the voices and all the interpretations and let people kind of take out what they want. And it has led me, I would say, now that I have these books kind of under my belt, to approach this material actually in a completely different way as not really an exploration of truth, per se but an exploration of meaning. So what I see in these stories from both, you know, the skeptical side and the, the believer side or the people who simply experienced it and can't understand it is a desire to shape this material into meaning into their own truth, you know? So, This way, I'm not the ultimate arbiter of what is the truth. This is really, these things are intensely personal. And with Haunted World War II, it even takes it a step much farther because I think when I was writing uh, America's Haunted Universities, those stories are kind of fun to tell. You know, a lot of them are campus lore and, and there's some zaniness about it. And then when I, you know, wrote... Uh, haunted world war or haunted rock and roll, and the c- ghosts of country music. I found that those stories had a lighthearted side. Some of them had an eerie side, but but it was uh, almost uh, kind of a fun eeriness. Uh, but when you get into World War II and you're telling these tales, uh, I think uh, the the word solemn was mentioned early on uh, in in the broadcast, and I think that is the essence of what I was sort of hit in the face with when I wrote this. And it turned me from sort of this, you know, like journalists just telling these stories to, you know, I have to handle this material in a much more sensitive way because in haunted rock and roll, I talk about the ghost, you know, the, the 27 club, these people, these artists who died at a very young age. And, you know, there's 30 or 40 of them in haunted world war II. How many thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of 18 year olds who didn't have the long life that we all, you know, are blessed with? How many of those stories are out there and how are they wrapped into these these ghost stories and and what is the meaning of these ghost stories as it applies to them? So it was kind of a, a much more intense effort in uh you know, it was one of those things that I tried to handle with a lot of sensitivity.
1: And I'm so glad that you did because uh, the fallen deserve the respect and the honor. They suffered a tragic fate and they did it by answering the call of duty, their patriotic duty. Mm -hmm. And so when we advertised, promoted your appearance, we followed that line of thought. This is not supposed to be just for fun and games, something spooky. We're talking about Actual lives that were lost and you handle the subject very sensitively kudos to you for that
0: And with that in mind Matt, we want to start with the Pearl Harbor experience It, it would be 79 years ago in a couple of days And so we wanted to start there with some of the strange goings-on at the Hickam Air Force Base Pearl Harbor um, and some weird stuff with planes landing without a pilot and alarms going off in the middle of the night. You've got some great stories in your book, and so we're gonna let you go ahead and and tell a couple of those now for our listeners
2: yeah sure well i I guess I could start with uh hickam hickam airfield uh, because i uh some sometimes I think. The airfield and also uh, the Schofield Barracks gets a little lost in the history of Pearl Harbor, because they weren't the main focus of the attack, which was on the harbor itself. But they were, uh, first of all, they were kind of subsidiary targets for the Japanese pilots, but also they played a, a key role in the recovery efforts uh, after the attack. And so Hickam Airfield uh, near Pearl Harbor was attacked. Uh, and the Japanese pilots were trying to, to uh, ground as many of the aircraft there as possible. So there were, you know, hundreds of deaths there. And some of the, the bases, uh, some of the buildings on the base, if they weren't uh, destroyed in the actual attack uh, and had fatalities in that building, they housed fatalities and the injured afterwards. And some of the stories here, there was, uh, I think it was the, the one headquarters building I thought was a little fascinating because this kind, this came from several accounts that I read, but the one that I used in the book was, I thought, a little more systematic in how this person talked about it. Um, and the, 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 um, soldier in in question came to Hickam and I, I think he was a security specialist and he was expecting, you know, the, the processes to be exactly the same as some of the other buildings that he was involved in securing. But when he came to Hickam and the, uh, the headquarters base there or the headquarters building there, it was a little weird. First of all, he noticed that the CQ Uh, which is is this desk that normally is right as soon as you go into a building. uh, There's usually a soldier there, and it's kind of someone who guards it, makes sure he knows who's coming or she knows who's coming and going. But this CQ desk was outside of the building, which was weird. And then I think the first day he was there, uh, there was an alert around 3 o'clock in the morning uh, went off, uh, and the alarm went off, and one part that was close to the process was this security detail came in and they turned off the alarm. And so the the soldier said later to his uh, supervisor, that was kind of weird. Usually if there's an alarm, it means there's someone in the building and they, you know, go and, and check out to make sure that there's, you know, no, no enemy have come, you know, have come in or vandals or, or anything like that, spies, whatever. Um, why didn't they go investigate? And the supervisor told him it's going to be something you're going to have to get used to because this happens with such frequency here that um, that they no longer do that. And then he said, did you notice the CQ desk is outside? It's because the people, this, these soldiers get so spooked from some of this, uh, the goings on that that's happened there. And then later on, uh, this, uh, this soldier actually had some of those things happen and, and they talk about, uh, footsteps and, and they go to where those footsteps are and there's no one there and the steps will start to shake and then shake louder and, and with more ferocity throughout and then suddenly end, you know, so, so those are some of the, the more paranormal activities on, on that building. But I would say that as I went through some of these, you know, they can be very informal accounts on blog posts or in uh, online forums. All of the buildings there seem to be a little, a little on the haunted side, according to these people. There's, there's something, uh, this activity is, is very strange.
0: My understanding about this from talking to a number of ghost researchers is that hauntings seem to occur oftentimes where there has been trauma or violence. And of course, it's hard to imagine more violence than Pearl Harbor when mm-hmm. you've got you know all of the all of the men who died in those uh, bombing attacks by the Japanese. So in your looking at all of the stories, does that seem like that's a a good uh, conclusion? Is that because of the trauma and the violence, all of these ghosts are there? I would
2: say that's that's certainly one of the top theories um, of the the researchers that that I talked to about this for sure. And particularly in Pearl Harbor. and again sometimes these researchers will talk about residual energy and the best way I can the analogy I have is like a record player and I'm probably dating myself but you know you make these impressions in the record and then as the needle you know goes through it again it it replays this or or you know you might think about a tape or a CD same kind of idea but that these these Psychic forces have uh, kind of impressed themselves in the time and space in these areas, and that every once in a while they burst out. Now, there's some differences about this building that I was discussing, the headquarters building, that that doesn't seem to add up, that I tried to dig into. But, you know, Pearl Harbor was attacked around 7 o'clock in the morning, 7 to 8. Uh the activity really heats up at around three in the morning in this building, according to the witnesses. So there's a couple ideas there. One is three o'clock seems to be a normal spooky time, according to a lot of these researchers. But there's also the idea that maybe the real activity in this building happened long after the building when they were moving, uh, the injured and, uh, bringing in, you know, dead bodies into this and we're going up and down the stairs. So, so, That idea sort of uh, reflects this idea of, of kind of residual spiritual energy.
1: I would like to know more, Matthew, about what people report from their visits to the Pearl Harbor Memorial, in particular the USS Arizona Memorial itself, which is built atop the sunken wreckage, which entombs a thousand or more sailors, I have a personal experience of that, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about it, just so that we can sort of share and compare our experiences.
2: Right. Um, and I, with uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Arizona does seem to be the the absolute center of some of the the stories, the the paranormal and the supernatural happenings going on in the base. It seems to be the the focal point Uh, there's, there's one story that is definitely a ghost story and it feels more like ghost lore to me. And it's, it's very evocative, but the background of this story is that there was a sailor and I, I don't know how true this is or not, but there is a sailor who was on the ship right before the attack uh, was on, on guard duty um, that, that morning that Sunday morning. And, you know, it was a very beautiful morning, a very kind of lazy Sunday morning for the troops. And this sailor decided he would venture off the ship uh, just for a little bit. And no sooner had he left the ship when it was attacked and the Arizona blew up in front of him. Uh, so, So the ghost story is that there have been people who have... Uh, gone to that point on the shore, uh, right before where you can see the Arizona Memorial because the Arizona Memorial submerged, and they say that they have seen this figure of a sailor, and it usually happens in the morning, usually happens in very misty mornings, kind of looking out onto that point with a a sad look on his face. So that story has has been discuss quite a bit. Uh, there are other stories and, and these, these stories get into kind of like the, the electromagnetic, uh, um, activity there. Uh, one lady who was just taking pictures of everything throughout the, the day on her cell phone, I believe it was, um, noticed when she took a picture of the water, this kind of serene water, uh, over top of the memorial, when she looked at it, she saw faces of young men in this picture. And to verify that she wasn't just kind of seeing things, or, or you know how when you look at a cloud you'll see Mickey Mouse or whatever, she decided to show it to her husband. And her husband grabs it and immediately sees these faces. And so, there are other stories like that. So the stories there run the gamut from what I would consider people having a a real profound uh, spiritual encounter or supernatural encounter to these ideas of this, this ghost lore, which seems to be a story that's emblematic of, of to me, when I think about that story is the, the, you know, what would have happened if, if I would have been on post, if I would have been able to sound the alarm, what would have happened? So, and I think that story is is reflected in a lot of the history of Pearl Harbor.
1: Well, thanks for telling that, Matthew. I have made four trips to Hawaii. They happened four years in a row, nineteen ninety-one through nineteen ninety-four. The first time I went to the Pearl Harbor Memorial, and I go every time I go to Hawaii there, I I remember going on November. 7 1991 a month before the 50th anniversary and i can still recall the orderly and respectful way in which almost everybody took that tour on a boat from the visitors center there a few minutes uh, boat ride to the arizona memorial itself and we toured it and you don't get that much time because people line up they're waiting their turn and when we got off after a, a very mournful and respectful visit there, there's a sense that you were definitely, even out at, in a port on the water, you're on hallowed ground, if you know what I mean, a sacred location. And when we got off the boat, the tour guide who's with the uh, the park service there, they or those who administrate the uh, memorial, he said, I was so discouraged, I worry sometimes, and I asked him why. And he said, We had some middle schoolers. Okay, so these are just young teenagers at this point, there who were so uninformed about United States history that when the subject on the tour just ahead of ours brought up World War II, the meaning of it all, one young boy Said that uh, he didn't know much about World War II, but he had heard that Adolf Hitler was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, thank. <laughs> and this this guy, this ranger, said that he worried about the future of America because the youth were so divorced from our own history, even history as recent as World War II, never mind the Civil War, never mind the Revolutionary War. They didn't know much about World War II, though they identified Adolf Hitler as the villain, so there's that. Yeah. That was an amazing experience in itself. The second time I was aboard the Arizona Memorial itself, I was uh, with my partner at the time, and we just sort of went our separate ways once we were on the memorial. Curiosity took over, and I went into this this uh, anteroom, which is actually a memorial with all the names of the known dead on these giant stone tablets to all appearances. And there was a wreath from Vietnam War veterans who were there to honor uh, the dead from the USS Arizona and Pearl Harbor. I remember being transfixed And I was looking at all the names, and I was just stunned by the solemnity and by the tragedy surrounding that event, a unique tragedy at that time. This was about a decade before 9-11. And I turned around, and I discovered, to my shock, and I still get chills thinking about it, the boat took everybody but me back to the visitor center. I was on the Arizona Memorial by myself. Oh, my gosh. And this was, as I say, totally inadvertent. I wouldn't plan that. But I was there for about five minutes, five of the longest minutes of my life. I'm not going to tell you that I saw any specters. There were no ghost sightings, nothing like that. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see any pattern in the lapping waves. But with the motion of that. Memorial over the entombed dead and looking down into the galley where the bomb fell that did the fatal damage i was looking down into it and the feelings that came over me were so intense that i actually with physical movements i would have been very embarrassed had anyone been observing i was trying to push emotions out of my body Mm. it it In the truest sense of being eerie, it was overwhelming. And wow, was I ever happy to see that boat come back with the next group, and then I went back with them. That is one of the—not paranormal, it wouldn't be the right word, but it is one of the most solemn and most harrowing experiences of my life to be that close to the lingering effects and meaning of history. It was an incredible experience, and I'll never forget it. That's powerful. I think it's time for us to take a break. Why don't we do that? When we come back, we're going to give our honored guest of this hour, Matthew L. Swain, the opportunity to discuss his books and how you can get them. In addition to which, and I made a promise I'm going to keep, Matthew is going to tell you how his interest in paranormal research was fueled by an experience that his own mother had now there is a story to be told and we will have the privilege of listening to it on the other side of this break you are listening to manson mitchell and you are tuned in to seattle's home of alternative talk am 1150. the preceding audio was via a skype call staying connected with gary mance and suzanne mitchell is easy just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests
2: Tested over time and distance, tried by circumstances and decisions.
0: I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I do solemnly swear to bear true faith and allegiance,
1: to help you when you're in need,
0: to tell the truth,
1: the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to be considerate and caring, courageous and strong for better for worse, in sickness and in health,
2: to love and cherish,
1: to be your loving, faithful friend,
2: partner, child,
0: parent, Parent. neighbor.
2: One of our most important commitments is to support our nation's veterans. Learn how you can help a veteran going through a difficult time by visiting maketheconnection.net.
0: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Turi Ryder, author of She Said What?, who shares her insights into our current status and our nation's direction in 2021.
1: On Saturday, Tanya and Joey Medea return with frightening and enlightening stories from their latest book, Roommates from Beyond, How to Live in a Haunted Home. They Speak from Experience. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a
0: time since
1: 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound.
0: The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. We are talking with Matthew L. Swain, author of five books all related to paranormal research Uh, Matt, please let our listeners know what your website is and where they can get your books and any other information you would like to share about how they can connect with you.
2: Sure. Uh, I have a website, mattswain.com. That's M-A-T-T-S-W-A-Y-N-E.com. The books are, are on, uh, amazon.com and barnesandnobles.com, uh, Sometimes Barnes & Noble will actually carry the physical copy, uh, and if they don't have it in, they say they'll get it in for you or just tell them to have it in there so that other people can buy it. Um, also, I'm available on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Matt Swain Books is usually the best way to get or just, or just Google that, uh, and, and that's how you can, can reach me.
1: Thank you. And and we recommend Amazon.com simply because these days, Jeff Bezos needs your money.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. He's
1: down to opening a can of Spam and resorting to peanut butter sandwiches four or five days a week, the poor slob. So (laughs) send him your money.
2: Yeah. I feel even even bad that I get a royalty. Maybe I'll just donate it back to Amazon. (laughs) He would appreciate that.
1: That would be great they're so uh amazon of course being such a convenient way to get these books and and are your books i should ask you are they downloadable on
2: kindle uh i think most of them are yes okay good because
1: i have quite the library on my ipad that's always a good way especially if Uh, When you're living with Suzanne Mitchell and she's asking you, what are you going to do with all these books coming in, many of which are sent to us by publishers promoting potential guests? They're pitching us there and uh, we're going to have to cut out a wall and put in some shelving here, Suzanne. So that's why I like Kindle as well. Very good. Well, thank you, Matthew, once again, for joining us. I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell the story about your mom's own paranormal experience. It seems to have a lot to do with your own motivation for entering into this field of research.
2: Well, you know, I, I don't know whether I would say it. What what it really did was this story made me uh, look into some different types of phenomena uh, when I researched Haunted World War II. And so, and, and I will say this, my mom was very spiritually connected and had a lot of these experiences and wasn't afraid to, to tell me about them. Um, and, and so the one in particular that really informed this book was one morning, uh, and my dad confirmed this, one morning, they would take early morning walks in the summer, five, six o'clock in the morning. And they left one morning and it was still pretty, pretty dark, but, but very foggy. And the light was starting to, to appear and and where uh, my folks lived in Tyrone was a, you know, a residential area, a lot of uh, homes in this area. Wasn't like they were living in the middle of nowhere and so they left they went off the porch took a few steps down the road and my mom said she looked up and there was this massive plane uh, flying and she described it almost as a world war ii plane with uh, two big uh, propellers uh, prop plane uh, coming down uh, right down maybe 100 200 feet off the ground very at a very dangerous level in the fog that way and what my mom said was it was very weird that it was so close she could see the light in the cockpit she couldn't see a pilot but she could see the light and she said it it didn't make a sound which you would think a big lumbering beast like that would make quite a racket uh they watched it go over top of them over the next uh bank into the clouds and was never seen again and and so she was convinced she saw something called a ghost plane and and she was also convinced and my dad witnessed the whole thing and was was able to corroborate what my my, my mom saw too uh, so when I started writing this book I thought hmm wonder if there has ever been ghost planes and so I think this kind of ratchets up the paranormal to kind of a pretty high up on the weirdo meter because now where I'm used to ghosts of people or ghosts of pilots in planes, I was never really familiar with ghosts of actual objects. And we talked a little bit about this in haunted rails, but one of the ghost stories that came out of this, because I was able to use the right search terms to try to find it was this incident that happened during Pearl Harbor Uh, But in California, not in Hawaii. And the story is that uh, in California, people saw this plane come over, which looked like a a, a, at that point, point, a current era fighter plane, you know, maybe like a a Warhawk, a Curtis Warhawk or something, a P-40 came flying over, sputtering smoke. Uh, Its engine was breaking in and out flew over and a lot of people said they heard the noises of a crash, uh, definite metal uh, clunking sounds and the concussion of an accident. And so the emergency crew, they called the fire department and, and the emergency crew went out and never located, uh, any, any sign of wreckage, which was, was pretty bizarre. Uh, so there is, there's a, f- a few things, uh, people have speculated about what they experienced. One of those is that they experienced what, you know, my mom would have called a ghost plane flying over. And at the same time, allegedly that this had happened, the attack on Pearl Harbor was going on. And of course, these people, you know, communications wasn't quite like it is now. It wasn't as instantaneous. I mean, in seconds, we would have probably had information about The September 11th attacks. In World War II, it it took a while to get uh, disseminated to the different people. So there is this idea that it was some type of bizarre um, reflection of what had happened in in Pearl Harbor. And in Pearl Harbor, a few planes did get up in the air and did fight against the Japanese pilots and did down a couple Japanese Zeros. But they also... Uh, A few of those were also shot down, too. So it became kind of this, like, ghost phenomena. Now there's another story to it, just to give all sides to it, that maybe there was a crash later, and it somehow got twisted into the story about, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor. So those, those are... Some of the stories that I encountered, really just based on on my my mom's account that she told to me over the years.
1: And again, thank you for sharing that. this This is what it is to have oral history at one's command, or at least available for uh, for appreciation purposes. I did, and speaking of appreciation, When we were setting up this interview, Matthew, I, I told you I wanted to be sure to allow a little time to discuss. You can pretty much, it's dealer's choice, you pick your favorite. There are ships that have become floating museums, and thank goodness they exist, because this is the remnant of history reconstructed as much as possible so that we can appreciate who we were then and who we are now in context I'm thinking, for example, and if you have uh, one that you prefer, please do, but I'm thinking of the USS Lexington, for example.
2: Right. Uh, The Lexington, I think, is a good one to talk about because it has been uh, thoroughly investigated and it's been investigated by, you you know, really some of the uh, great paranormal researchers. I'm thinking of Lloyd Auerbach, who You know, I remember as a kid reading some of his stories and I think I remember reading about uh, the Lexington, which is probably how it it ended up in this book. But, you know, the the Lexington in World War Two was they called it the Blue Ghost, which I point out in the in the book, because I think that's kind of interesting. And the Japanese were convinced that they had already sunk the Lexington and then suddenly it would appear and. It was a real battle-hardened carrier, and it continually showed up, you know, when the Japanese uh, sailors and pilots and soldiers probably least wanted it to. And so it, it got this name uh, as uh, as the Blue Ghost. You know, it was also uh, the victim of a few attacks by the Japanese that led to casualties, which I think some people uh, – consider the reason why it is haunted and one of the the ghost stories that comes out of the USS Lexington is this ghost of Charlie uh and Charlie is this blonde haired blue-eyed sailor and he has been seen a few different times by again several accounts of people running into this this ghost of of Charlie Um, and there's even a story about how uh a group. I think it might have been a couple or a, a few people showed up, and they saw this sailor dressed in World War II garb, and so they figured this person was a um, either a tour guide um, or a reenactor who was going to help, you know, guide them around these huge aircraft carriers, which are literally, you know, cities-sized uh, kind of boats. And so they went on this tour, and then suddenly the the, the guide, this um, uh, Charlie, uh, decided to leave, and he left the group. And then this this group ran into some people who were actual uh, officials on the USS Lexington, and they described this person, and they could not figure out who it was. It was almost like a ghost had appeared and, and given them this, this great tour of this boat. And they even mentioned about how some of the details this this person gave them, this tour guide gave them, were so intense that they made the comment kind of mentally that it was almost like he had lived through this. And maybe, you know, maybe he did.
1: And maybe he did. Yes, somebody who sounds like they were on board sailing would have an intimacy that they could communicate I'm glad you mentioned the Charlie story because that really stood out in the book as we read it. I also want to get to the point as I'm looking at the clock here, I don't want to neglect to mention something. Yes, Suzanne.
0: Well, I was going to say, um, there the book covers all of the theaters, not only the Pacific Theater, but the European Theater. Right. And there are so many stories. The ones from England were fascinating. The one from Belgium that we read there were things going on all over the world during World War II. I'm thinking we need to have Matthew Swain back again next year. Well, and go yes. Over this again. Please yeah. do. But, well, but I—I you... know there's something on your mind, Gary, that you want to get to before the end of the hour,
1: well, and it's, so it's rooted in my disappointment, Matthew, not with you <laughs> or with your writing or research. I remember one time I was working in the rental office of an apartment building. There And there was a World War II-era flyer. He's probably gone to the great beyond, rest his oh. soul, an elderly gentleman. And we got talking about his war experiences. And not all of them are willing to share freely. He was mm-hmm. actually very kind to tell me the things that he, that he had to report. But I got curious. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go ahead and take a chance here. And I said, sir, can you tell me anything about the alleged Foo Fighters? Because in the world of UFO research, the Foo Fighters stand as one of the early and very mysterious examples of anomalous aerial activity with performance capabilities on the part of these aircraft that we can't match today. And yet both sides in the war, the Axis powers, the Allied powers, reported Foo Fighters, or what became known as Foo Fighters, they're UFOs. And when after the war, people would recount their sightings, their encounters with these craft, the Americans would say to the Germans when they got into a conversation, we thought that you had some kind of secret weapon with these mysterious aircraft that did things that we couldn't dream of doing. And their German counterparts would say, we thought they were yours. (laughs) And with that, what is it that you've been able to discover and uncover about the Foo fighters?
2: Well this is a subject that I really l- like to talk about because I was always interested in these foo fighters too and I really consider World War II the start of the modern UFO era. A lot of people say it was it was later on when I think was it Kenneth Arnold who who witnessed uh, the planes in I think Oregon or the UFOs in Oregon. I really Washington. believe Washington, I believe it started in World War II with these Foo Fighters. And I think the critical thing, uh, the reason why this, you know, rises above some of the other stories that, you know, could have multiple explanations for when you're talking about aviators, there are no better observers of aerial phenomena than aviators, They're in the air more than we are. They're always looking at the sky when we're not always looking at the sky. I mean, hopefully, sometimes we want to look at the ground to make sure we know where we're going. But then take it to another level and say these aviators are in conflict and they need to know minute details about how an aircraft performs, how fast it's going, because they need to know whether it's a friendly or it's – Someone that's going to kill them, so they are. It, World War Two aviators are one step above just great uh, observers of aerial phenomena, and then in some of these stories that I've uncovered, they weren't just aviators or fighter pilots; they were night fighters, and probably one of the most, uh, you know, famous, uh, foo fighter um, uh, fun, sightings came. With the 415 Night Fighter Squadron in World War II, and they had not just one or two sightings of these strange objects. And the objects, you know, were pretty consistent throughout the the conflict. They were usually described as pretty small. They were orange or red, and they looked like balls of fire. Most of them did. Uh, and there are some other ones that are kind of outliers, but. This night fighter squadron were the best of the best, the cream of the cream, because not did they only have to know about aerial phenomena. And they also had to know about uh, whether it was friend or foe. They had to do it in the dark. And over this period, I think it was from like November 1944 into December 1944, they had these uh encounters with the, with these strange objects that seemed to the intensity of this these encounters started to increase it was almost like some of the pilots from the 415 seemed to think that they were being targeted or being watched very closely by these objects and you know the initially it would be one light would appear on the you know the left or right wing of these planes and seemed to follow along with with these planes And then later they were in formation. And in fact, around Christmas, they would be in these formations of three to five lights that the one pilot actually said looked like, you know, almost like Christmas decorations. Uh, So that was a really interesting uh, thing that I I wasn't familiar with uh, that I found. But I think that one of the things you pointed out is Uh, most of the Foo Fighter phenomena we like to think about as happening in Europe over Germany, uh, especially with the bomber formations. And that certainly did happen, but there are so many other, uh, uh, examples of this, uh, in the South Pacific, for example, with, uh, the conflict against the Japanese. Uh, and there were also some stories about as early as, uh, June 6th in 1944, the invasion of Normandy, a group of officers saw this very strange uh, object fly overhead, and they they thought it was a V2 or some type of... Uh, rocket uh, that the Germans launched. But there was a problem with that. The the rocket was actually going towards Germany, not away from it. And it was just nothing that was in the Allied arsenal at that, at that point. So it's kind of fascinating. Well,
1: it is. I mentioned being disappointed, and I should put a bow on this topic by saying that the gentleman who was so kind to share his war stories with me not only didn't have any such stories to report because I asked him, "Have you ever heard of the Foo Fighters and what was going on in World War II? This was aerial warfare, etc." He not only didn't have any stories to share; he had never heard the term wow. "Foo Fighter." He heard it the, for the first time from me. <laughs> this was in the 1990s. Wow! And I thought, "Wow, okay." I was hoping that I would get an up-close and personal account of the. Foo Fighters, but no such luck. And yet, here are all these others reporting these stories, and it, it has become part of the lore, but also the research into the aerial phenomena of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for sharing that. It's a continuing mystery, I take it.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's ever been officially solved, because, you know, as I go through these encounters and these uh, the, the descriptions do not seem to fit in anything because they're sometimes explained as rockets. But again, rockets have a certain trajectory. These seem to be under intelligent control. There were very early drone-type rockets, but that there was usually a very close by uh, sort of a tracing aircraft that was controlling it. That doesn't seem to be the case. Meteors are very quick. And uh, you know, at least the one account that I have of a, I uh, believe it was a B twenty four, claimed that this this uh, Foo Fighter had uh, had tailed their craft for, you know, almost uh, forty minutes to an hour. So that just doesn't seem like any of that phenomena fits. So it's it's an open question.
1: I did want to say thank you so much for writing this book, Matthew L. Swain. We definitely want to have you back, and I'm thinking because of the material that we didn't get to in this hour, and that is haunted battlefields, harrowingly haunted battlefields, including Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Mm-hmm. that uh, the next time i'd like to do the interview around vj day so that we could discuss those because people who go in there and some of them are war trophy hunters by the way There, is a subject that's quite controversial because of questionable ethics involved mm-hmm. that's a whole separate interview right there so when we think about iwo jima and okinawa there and the pacific theater in world war ii plenty of ghost story material there and next time we have you on, we would like to get into that with you, Matthew.
2: I would love that. And, and you know, I did divide the book up into basically the ghost story part. And then the other part we can also discuss is some of these bizarre synchronicities and things like that, that, that is kind of the other part of this book. But I'd love to talk about it.
1: And we've got a minute and a half to kill. So why don't you just tell us a little bit there about, just tease us with the country western stories. That's interesting. I mean, are you talking about like going to a a reportedly haunted bar like Gillies, for example, places in Tennessee and so forth?
2: Well, there there are a few of those. uh, And mainly it it follows along the same path as the haunted rock and roll, where I have some key. So in this book, I actually have some uh, stories about country musicians who've had supernatural encounters and then there's another section on uh ghosts of these figures people like patsy klein and hank williams i have some haunted uh ghost locations and there's there's one famous country and western uh nightclub that honest to god i can't remember the name right now but but that one is kind of the center for a lot of uh Uh, paranormal activity so i have those stories and um uh the one thing that i didn't find that i found in haunted uh, rock and roll was this idea of curses so there's not a lot of country music curses that i found before i wrote this i found some
0: later but but that's that book we plan on getting the, the entire set you're gonna be. <laughs> we are we are so thrilled oh, love with your it. writing and, and love to have to an interview with you. The book so, we have
1: discussed today is Haunted World War II: Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Matthew L. Swain, S-W-A-Y-N-E. Pick up a copy of this book in whatever format you are going to love it.
0: And thank you for being with us today, Matthew.
2: Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. I really enjoy it. Likewise.
0: Stay tuned for Jupiter Rising.
2: She is back. Jupiter's
1: rising once again. Have yourselves a great weekend, everyone, and stay safe out there. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.